The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. Glory to you, Lord Christ. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. As we remain standing, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for these words and for this promise of assurance that no one and nothing can snatch us out of your hands, that no one and nothing can snatch us from the Father's hands, that we are secure in your love. We pray that we would know this security and stability today, that you might be glorified in our midst. Amen. Please be seated. I wonder if you've ever been so sad that you forgot to eat, or so physically ill it felt like your bones were on fire, or so lonely you wondered if even God had forgotten about you. I wonder if you lie awake at night because you can't put your worries to sleep, or if good friends have betrayed you or if a cruel diagnosis has left you living on borrowed time. So the truth is that most of us have experienced more than one of these conditions at some point. Perhaps even now you're living under the shadow of one or more. At least one person experienced all of them at the same time and wrote down a prayer when he did. It's included in our Bibles as Psalm 102. Now, Mark read this for us just a few minutes ago. It is raw. It's real. It's also deeply reflective, and it's rooted in much more than suffering. It's an artful piece of poetry that moves from complaint to confidence to abiding consolation along a spine of enduring hope. It's a great example of what we call a psalm of lament. Now, you may be surprised to learn that more than a third of the psalms that we have in Scripture are classified as psalms of lament. That's more than 50 poems and prayers addressing topics as wide-ranging as physical suffering, the agony of broken relationships, the pain of national humiliation, the heavy burden of guilt, anger in the face of injustice, personal betrayal, family dis dysfunction, and impending death. In other words, these prayers take us into just about every dark corner of our human experience while at the same moment placing us firmly in God's presence. Here are just a few of the phrases that you'll hear in these psalms. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22. 
Darkness is my only companion. Psalm 88. How long, O Lord, will you be angry forever? Psalm 79. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Psalm 10. It's not exactly what people expect to read when they crack open their Bibles, is it? I love these psalms. I love them because they speak so honestly about the lives that we lead. They don't sugarcoat. They do not pretend that all is well when times are hard. They force us to ask tough questions, and they refuse to give us shallow or simplistic answers. They remind us that even when God is silent, He is still present. This morning and on each Sunday during this season of Lent, we're going to be looking at these Psalms of Lament. My hope for us during this season is that we'll be given a new language for how to pray when times are hard, that we will be given a renewed vision of the goodness and the glory of God, and that we will be better equipped to navigate the hardest seasons of our lives. So we begin today by looking at Psalm 102. If you haven't turned there already in your red Bibles, then let me encourage you to do so. You can find it on page 501. So the psalm begins with a plea for God to listen, followed by a barrage of complaint. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. Incline your ear to me. Answer me speedily in the day when I call. For my days pass away like smoke, and my bones burn like a furnace. My heart is struck down like grass and is withered. I forget to eat my bread. Because of my loud groaning, my bones cling to my flesh. I'm like a desert owl of the wilderness, like an owl of the waste places. I lie awake. I'm like a lonely sparrow on the housetop. All the day, my enemies taunt me. Those who deride me use my name for a curse, for I eat ashes like bread and mingle my tears with my drink because of your indignation and anger. For you've taken me up and thrown me down. My days are like an evening shadow. I wither away like grass. Now, we don't know the circumstances behind this particular psalm. We only know that the psalmist is experiencing what can only be called a maelstrom of pain. In this psalm, the suffering's physical. There's loss of appetite, an ache in his bones so strong that he can't sleep. The suffering's also mental and emotional. The psalmist fears that his life is coming to an end. He's afraid. He is also desperately lonely. He describes himself as a solitary bird lost in a desert wasteland. Well, all of this physical and emotional pain the psalmist lays out unflinchingly before God. He just drops it right in God's lap. I wonder, do you ever talk to God like this? Now, for most of us, the answer, if we're honest, is, is no. For some reason, we tend to hold back our agony. And I want to ask why that is. One reason we don't talk to God like this is that we think it reflects badly on us. So our logic goes something like this. If I were a good Christian, 
I wouldn't be having such a hard time. There must be something wrong with me that's led to this suffering. I just need to figure this out. I just need to do better, to be better, and I'll come back to prayer once I've sorted myself out. That is a profound misunderstanding of the Christian life. When Jesus and the disciples shared their final meal together before his death, Jesus spent a lot of time talking about how hard things were going to be when he was gone. He basically said, look, guys, I am going to rise from the dead and prepare an eternal home for you. But between now and then, when I greet you on the other side of death, things are not always going to go smoothly. You will suffer for me, and you will suffer more generally. The Christian life, it is not one long, happy walk to victory. It's a road marked by sorrow, but held fast by hope. We know that this isn't the way things were meant to be, but it's the way things are in a fallen world. When we, when we refuse to acknowledge that suffering is a normal part of the Christian life, we ignore the words of Jesus himself, and we cut off our ability to talk to God when we need him the most. Another reason we don't talk to God like this is because we fear that he might not understand, or worse, that he might not even care. Now, this is a profound misunderstanding of God. Just consider the fact of the incarnation, that God chose to become one of us, and that in, so, in doing so, he willingly stepped into the struggle and the strife of human life. So Jesus understands suffering in a painfully intimate way. He experienced isolation. He knew false accusation. He endured physical agony. What we experience as creatures, the Creator chose to experience Himself. Now, I cannot think of anything else that God could have done to demonstrate so profoundly that He cares about the kind of lives that we lead. Well, finally, we don't talk to God like this because we fear that God might be offended if we're honest with Him about the way we feel. We fear that we might say something incorrect, and instead of a sympathetic response, we will only cause God to get angry. Now, if we believe that Scripture is inspired by God, that these words, uh, that these are words written under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, then we must have confidence that these 50-plus prayers in the Psalms are not exceptions to the rule of prayer, but a model for how to pray. They are an open invitation to be honest because God wants to hear the cry of our hearts. So we're invited to, to lament. We are invited to lament, but lament, as we will see, it's different from mere complaint. This is not divinely sanctioned whining. There is more going on in these psalms, and we see that in the next section of this psalm. So notice what happens at verse 12. But you, O Lord... 
are enthroned forever. You are remembered throughout all generations. You will arise and have pity on Zion. It is the time to favor her. The appointed time has come for your servants hold her stones dear and have pity on her dust. Nations will fear the name of the Lord and all the kings of the earth will fear your glory for the Lord builds up Zion. He appears in his glory. He regards the prayer of the destitute and does not despise their prayer. So verse 12, we shift from a torrent of complaint in the first 11 verses to a completely unexpected statement of confidence in God. And this is where we begin to see what is so unique about biblical lament. The reason the psalmist talks to God the way he does in verses 1 to 11 is because he, of what he knows to be true in verses 12 to 22. So what is it that he knows to be true? Well, first, he knows that God is sovereign. But you, O Lord, are enthroned forever, he says. Those circumstances appear to indicate that God is nowhere to be found. The psalmist knows that he's still in charge. He reigns over this world in which suffering persists. And this means that God is never surprised by our circumstances and he is able to intervene in them if he so desires. The psalmist knows that God is sovereign. The psalmist also knows the character of the God with whom he's speaking. So in verses 12 and 22, the psalmist repeats the name of God seven times. It's, this number, it's this, the number of perfection in Hebrew Scripture. Now, in our Bibles, the name of God, it's translated as the Lord, where Lord appears in small caps. In the original Hebrew, it says Yahweh. This use of God's name, it's vitally important to the psalmist because it has a history. When God revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush, Moses asked, understandably, who he was. And God replied that he was Yahweh. It means I am who I am. And God explained further that he was the same God who called Abraham to follow him and made him a promise that through his offspring he would bring blessing to the whole world. It's a name with a promise. Seven times the psalmist repeats this name as a reminder to himself and as a reminder to God that he's made an unbreakable promise. And that promise is that no matter how hard life might be and how deep our sufferings may scar us, God will redeem us on the last day. And he has demonstrated his faithfulness to that promise in every generation. Now, the psalmist is not experiencing God's blessing at the moment, not that he can tell, but he holds on to hope in the character of God. Well, finally, the psalmist knows that God hears and that God acts. He says in verse 17 that God, God regards the prayer of the destitute and does not despise their prayer. So the psalm began with a plea to God to listen Please listen to me, the psalmist begins. Here at, at the heart of the prayer is an affirmation that he does. God hears us. But more comforting than this is the fact that he actually wants to hear from us and that he's willing to act in response to our needs. 
The psalmist doesn't know what God's going to do, but he comes to him in full confidence, not only that he hears his prayer, but that he's willing to act on his behalf to restore him to life and to hope and to peace. Well, after this middle section with its affirmation of confidence in God, the psalm ends with an expression of profound consolation. In verses 23 to 24, the psalmist begins to draw his prayer to a close with a restatement of his troubles and a plea for God to act. He writes this, he's broken my strength in mid-course. He has shortened my days. Oh my God, I say, take me not away in the midst of my days. You whose years endure throughout all generations. Here the psalmist is reminding God just how hard things are and just how much agony he's in. He wants to make sure that God knows that in spite of his confidence, he is still struggling. Then in verses 25 to 28, the psalmist sets his present suffering within a timeline that encompasses all of history, beginning with creation and ending with a declaration of hope and a new creation. Verse 25, of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away, but you are the same, and your years have no end. The children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. This is an incredible vision. Looking all the way back to creation, the psalmist acknowledges that God was before all things and reigns over all things. He then looks forward to what will one day be the end of the world as he knows it. And he says that then God will still be God and his people will be with him forever because that is what God has promised all along. Now when he prayed this prayer, the psalmist didn't know how this would happen. He didn't understand how God in his majesty would exchange this present world of suffering for a new world where his children would dwell secure. We, on the other hand, we do know how this will happen. It's in the first chapter of the letter to the Hebrews in the New Testament. The author shows that Jesus is the means by which God keeps his promises. In order to show this, uh, the author of Hebrews quotes from a string of psalms leading up to these exact verses from Psalm 102. And by doing so, the, the, the writer of Hebrews puts flesh on the bones of what the psalmist declared by faith. When Jesus rose from the dead, he destroyed its power. Even though we die, death can't hold us any longer. When he rose from the dead, Jesus also made it abundantly clear that suffering and sorrow do not get the last word. He gets the last word. And it's a word of life and joy and peace. We, we pray these final words of Psalm 102 knowing how they have already been answered in part and how they will ultimately be answered when Jesus returns in glory to renew his creation. Now, one of the hardest things about a season of suffering is that we cannot see the other side. We don't know when it will end or how long it will last. Here, at the end of this psalm, we see how the psalmist copes with this uncertainty. 
He does so by reflecting on his ultimate hope that one day God will change out this world of suffering and establish a new world where his people will dwell secure in his presence. Do you see how deeply practical and richly theological this psalm is? It begins with complaint, but it doesn't stop there. In verse 12, it turns into a reflection on the nature and character of God, leading to confidence that God hears our prayers and answers them. And by the time we reach the final verses, we have the rich consolation of an eternal hope. Now, all of this took time. This is not a hastily written prayer. The psalmist thought about these words and ordered them with care. I want you to hear this, that biblical lament is time-consuming. I know from my own experience that each of these stages of prayer from complaint to confidence to consolation takes time to put into words. And, and these elements, they can all be present at the same time. So I can complain, but also be confident in God and receive the consolation of hope all in the same moment. It is really important to understand this. Lament is not a quick fix strategy for self-improvement. It is a way of being and a way of praying that situates us in a reality that we sometimes struggle to see. To lament is to be held. To lament is to be held. When we pour out our grief or sorrow or pain, what we are doing is we are placing ourselves in God's hands. Now that act, it may not change our feelings or our experience, but it reminds us who we are and where we are. We are in the hands of the God who made us, the God who suffered for us, and the God who promises to redeem us. Did you hear what Jesus said in John chapter 10, right before I began preaching? This is what Jesus said. He said, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. No one will snatch them out of my hand. In the hands of Jesus, there is suffering, but there's also safety. There's agony, but there's no need to fear because we know the one who holds us. That's the nature of biblical lament. As I said at the outset of this sermon, as we reflect on a small sampling of these psalms in the weeks ahead, my hope is that they will give us a new language for how to pray when times are hard. They'll give us a new, renewed vision of the goodness and the glory of God, and that they will give us a fresh capacity to navigate the hardest seasons of our lives. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you hear us. We thank you that you hold us, that no one and nothing can snatch us out of your hands. Would you teach us how to pray when times are hard? Would you give us a renewed vision of 
your goodness and glory and that of God the Father. And in these weeks ahead, would you give us a fresh capacity to navigate the hardest seasons of our lives, that you might be honored, that we might be consoled, that your kingdom might grow. We pray this for the honor and glory of your name. Amen.